we start today's episode, just to let you know, you can now nominate for the 2025 Northern Power Women Awards. To be in with a chance of celebrating with changemakers, trailblazers and advocates on the 6th of March 2025. Nominate now at wearepower.net. Power Women podcast for your career and your life, no matter what business you're in. Well, hello, I'm Sam Walker and welcome to another episode, episode four of the Northern Power Women podcast. Don't make me bake apple crumble. Coming up, find out from Karen Matteson, joint CEO of TimeWise, what it is that women and men want what they really, really want. The, the men come, they want it just as much as the women. And interestingly, younger men want it, and it's absolutely fundamental to them. In Ask the Hive this month, a place where you ask the question and the Northern Power Women Network provides a host of advice, we talk about why it appears that many successful women suffer from a chronic lack of confidence. So you're telling me, right, you're telling me that I can do food technology and I can make an apple pie, I can make apple crumble, but I can't go in and learn to code. In our discussion group, our contributors share their experiences over three lively subjects. I was the only man in the room, so they come to me and they say, where are we putting the concrete? And I just sort of turned around and said, I don't know, why don't you ask RMD Kirsten? She's also the one that can weld. But first, as ever, let's kick off proceedings with a word from the founder of Northern Power Women, the one and only Simone Roche, with some news from HQ. A jam-packed update this month. I'm not quite sure where to start. But firstly, thank you to Becky at Constellations for hosting this month's podcast live with Liam Kelly from Late Liverpool and Maggie O'Carroll from the Women's Organisation. We've launched a brand new website, you might have noticed. Thank you to our Newcastle ambassador, Adele Mitchinson, for creating a new platform focused on our brilliant Northern role models. Please do take a look. We've also created a new blog section too, so if you'd like to contribute or get involved, please contact us via the website. As well as a new website, we've also opened nominations for the third Northern Power Women Awards. 10 categories, including a new one for innovation. Plus, we need your nominations to add to the power and future lists. Do help us celebrate success. The weekly Northern Power Hour every Thursday on Twitter at midday is proving really popular. And this month, we're focused on who and what inspires you. And it might just give you some ideas for who to nominate to. A big thanks for your input in our returners' work. Your feedback is going to good use, so please watch out for our returners' event with Vodafone in November. Finally, you may not be aware, but Northern Power Women evolved from the International Festival for Business in 2014, showcasing the UK as a great place to trade and invest. I created an event called Women Inspiring the Economy at the festival, and Northern Power Women was born as a legacy of that event. This month, at the launch for the 2018 event, I got 90 seconds to talk Northern Power Women with its patron, Prince William, the Duke of Cambridge. And it was reassuring to hear of his passion and support for women in business and female entrepreneurs. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave your review. And hopefully, we'll now get one by Royal Appointment. Thank you. See you next month. Never likely to rub shoulders again with commoners like you and I. Thank you to Simone. And of course, you can follow everything that Northern Power Women does online at the new shiny northernpowerwomen.com and also on Twitter at North Power Women. Now, to this month's discussion panel. Thank you so much to everyone who came along to be part of the audience and do check out Twitter for details how you could be there next month. And thank you so much to Constellations in Liverpool who this month were our marvellous hosts. an impressive amount of clapping I love that hello thank you so much for being here today and welcome to the recording of episode four I know 
I know how we've grown already of the Northern Power Women podcast. Um, I'm Sam Walker. Hello. Thank you so much for listening. As ever, we have got three fantastic people to be part of our panel today. So without further ado, let me lunge over, first of all, to Maggie O'Carroll, the CEO of the Women's Organisation. Also with us today, Liam Kelly, Director of Make Liverpool and Chair of the Baltic Triangle. And Becky Ward, Managing Director of the beautiful and awesome event space we're in today. Constellations, thank you all. So lots of questions have been coming in and let me start off with one that's quite pertinent to the news this week actually. We, we learned this week that a quarter of young teenagers are showing signs of depression. Do employers still need to gain a better understanding of how mental health affects their workforce and how important is this? Maggie let me start with you. I think it's absolutely crucial insofar as this is the future. The, uh, the work pipe or the talent pipeline is, is crucial to the economy but the issue of mental health is something that's been misunderstood, stigmatised and also particularly um, child and adolescent mental health um, is something that also has been under-resourced and under-invested um, in. And effectively employers um, really do need to get to grips with supporting people and supporting particularly young people, apprentices um, into employment and so consequently and to be maintained within employment as well because the world's changed um, we're a very fast-moving economy. There's a gig economy. There's the whole uh, issue of social media and actually what imp- uh, impact is that having on employ- employees' mental health. But effectively, absolutely, there needs to be more investment. There needs to be more services. Uh, and there needs to be a connection between health services and employers. I think there's a bit of a disconnect at the moment. Liam, let me come to you. Liam Kelly, Director of uh, Make Liverpool and Chair of the Baltic Triangle. What are your thoughts on this? As an employer and also as somebody who suffered from ill mental health when I was younger, um, I'd like to think that my employees would feel comfortable enough to have that conversation with me or at least tell me that they have something that they don't feel comfortable talking to me about. And I think that if I just talk quickly about my experience with it, and I was a remote worker, um, which meant that my head office was in London and I worked up here. This is actually what led to us starting Make Liverpool as a co-working space originally. Um, we needed something for ourselves and I, was, I had cabin fever. And, and I can cast my mind back to how difficult it was to have that conversation with my boss because my role required me to drive around the country and to... Um, to, to do things that like an anxiety situation would make difficult and and I always I always sort of considered myself as somebody who could talk openly about things because that's how I was lucky enough to be raised but then when it came to something like this it was surprisingly hard and I think if I'd have had a less understanding boss or a more formal work life I may have ended up losing my job in the way that I acted or reacted and I was just very lucky to have an understanding employer. And I think that also as employers, our hands are tied a little as well. We Legislation doesn't give parity to mental health as, as it does with physical health. It's very clear what the actions are to take when somebody has a broken leg. I think that we need to get to that situation where those things are treated the same or looked at the same in in society and in the workplace as well. And that's where we should be aiming to get to. Yeah, it's it's a difficult thing and sometimes people don't want to talk about it and that's perfectly reasonable. We should hopefully trust in our employees that there's a reason why they don't want to talk to you about something that they're not they're not screwing you over with the amount of time that they're, they're taking off or need to take off. And also, like, how quickly we, we get healed. So if we're, if, we're, if we're talking at it in a context of health, and I, for example, break my leg, there's a very clear route to me getting back to work. There's a very clear route to me getting fixed. And there's also, you know, there's a difference between me spraining my leg and me breaking my leg. And there's, there's varying degrees of seriousness and appropriate action is taken for those things. And also the amount of time you're expected to heal and need is, is, is differing. But we don't understand mental health enough publicly to even make those sorts of judgments. It's like you either have poor mental health or you don't have poor mental health. And that is in itself 
a ridiculous situation to be in. Becky, I mean, from, from what Maggie and Liam have said, there seems there still seems to be this lack of understanding about what mental health is. And, and that translates, I suppose, the bottom line is there's a fear around it. Indeed. I mean, I think I've been really fortunate in all of my employment history and my uh, experiences of being an employer that uh, I've always had really positive interactions about poor mental health, um, either as myself or as an employer of people who were experiencing difficulties at the time. My business, as it stands, is probably a mecca for mental instability. Um, I think it's what makes my company beautiful. Uh, we're an extremely supportive and open uh, group of people around mental health. And I think um, not that that was necessarily what I set out to create as a business it's actually one of the things that I'm most proud of so um, we've been really fortunate to access um, some amazing support through other organizations such as the women's organization and there is great uh, free uh, education like workshops and things that I think employers can access um, I think finding information about those things is difficult you know as a small business paying for training is is quite a difficult thing to do but there's actually a huge amount of free resources that I think employers and employees can gain through that Okay, let's get to question number two. And again, this is something that's, that's been in the news and I know I've been uh, discussing with lots of different colleagues who are sending their kids off to university. This is the, the time of year, of course, when lots of kids are going off to start a whole new world. University fees are set to rise again for a lot of students. How important is higher education within the business world? The bottom line is, do we need a degree or do future business people, men and women, need a degree to be taken seriously. Liam, your thoughts on this first of all? So let's talk about the fact that I don't have a degree um, and I don't have any A-levels and I have terrible GCSEs but I still went to university um, and I studied a subject that didn't need to be a degree. Um, So yes, I have very strong opinions about whether or not we need to have all of these degrees that we have but also understand at the same time we do need a standardised method of vetting our experiences in education and and currently that's done through expanding the university offer Um, that's problematic probably uh, for the future and I've got sort of nothing to to quote to to back that up other than my opinion Um, and do businesses need people with degrees? Absolutely we need doctors and engineers and all of those things and actually uh, it seems that universities are increasingly more receptive to um, encouraging more women to become um, empowered with education and, and knowledge they are outstripping men when it comes to um, higher level and educational achievement that can be an avenue that would help sort of with some of that balance that we need in the workplace but you know fundamentally as a small business it's difficult to it's difficult to employ somebody who doesn't have experience and it is difficult to find a job when you don't have experience and we have this ridiculous trap that people are in and as and and I've been before this role as a director of a small company I was working for a small company and we were faced with exactly that same problem the cost involved with upskilling staff um, we offered a part-time job and the girl who came for the role was more than qualified on, on paper but she just didn't interview as well as we hoped and that was our only opportunity to see what she was like that's a failing of, of our interview process as novices but we couldn't take the risk it was too financially risky to like okay what if we take on this person and we owe this person the dues of their wages and all that sort of stuff and and if, if she'd have had if she'd have been able to prove to us that her experience would have allowed us to have that confidence then it would have been a different story and perhaps what we should have been asking for is not graduates but people with experience but then we have that trap um, I don't have a solution to that but I think that we need to acknowledge that that's a serious problem Becky, what about your experience? You run a business. Have you got a degree? Uh, I do. I was a mature student, uh, so I went to university when I was about 27 years old. Uh, I wanted to progress into a management role within the sector that I was working in at the time. Um, perfectly timed my graduation to the recession and found the, the third sector that I'd just worked in for 10 years didn't exist anymore uh, and became an intern at the age of 30. That was interesting. Had to move back home, uh, live with my mum and my 11-year-old daughter, back working for free again. Very interesting interesting scenario around the table and then 
you know, actually you know, kind of restarted through work experience, came into a new career, ended up owning a business. So, you know, it, it was an interesting journey for me. Um, I don't think I would knock that experience. I don't like the debt. Um, but I gained a lot from that. I wouldn't say necessarily they were, like, the obvious transferable skills, but, you know, it was a wonderful experience. I'm now in the uh, fortunate position that my daughter wants to go to university um, and is faced with the same problem, that she wants to go and study for five years to go and get into uh, a career as a counsellor. Um, and my wholehearted belief is that she should go and get a job and that she should work her way through that. But how do I deny her the experience of being a student? But I'm paying for it. <laughs> so it's like, you know, how am I going to put that much money into something when I just wholeheartedly don't believe that that is what is going to gain her the job that she wants at the end of that? Is she nervous about debt? Because, because a lot of people call it a graduate tax and say, well, look, you're not paying it back until you earn a certain amount. You shouldn't think of it as a £30,000 debt or whatever that you have. Um, I think she's very aware of it as a debt. She sees it against herself. She understands it is for her. She's worked since she was the age of 13, so you know, she earns her money, she spends her money, she knows how, how many hours she has to work to buy that pair of jeans. Like, so I think she's aware that it will affect her future employment choices because she feels that that is a debt that she will have to repay. As an employer, um, I have to say that we don't actively look at uh, educational qualifications whatsoever. If I'm honest, through a shortlisting process, we're probably looking at how someone presents themselves uh, in a cover letter and what their CV looks like as much as we're looking for that educational background. Um, and I guess, you know, as Liam mentioned, we're novices in terms of recruitment. We've made these processes up to suit our, uh, our environment. Um, but I often find that uh, the practices that are taught in educational environments are outdated to the practices that you actually need within the employment world. So um, it's not, it's actually almost like a detraction to us. Really interesting. And Maggie, we, you know, we often hear people like Lord Sugar on TV saying, I didn't go to do any higher or further education. You don't need it. If you've got a business mind, you power through. Is he the exception or could he, people like he become the rule? Is a degree necessary to be taken seriously? Well, I think that's exactly the problem. The evidence base is very clear in relation to this, that in actual fact, businesses are run and most successful businesses are run with people with degrees and postgraduate degrees. So Lord Sugar is the exception. And so is Richard Branson and whoever else. And, you know, you can probably name two. They're, they're probably the only two I can name. I do know a number of people that haven't got any formal education. But education is the silver bullet. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a degree. Um, I do think that uh, the discussion around um, different types of learning and knowledge acquisition uh, is something that we're not really having within the education framework uh, in this country. Um, so consequently, those ideas of technical skills that can certainly drive the economy and drive entrepreneurship... I'm terribly saddened by this, how the debate can be sort of really polarised into saying we don't really need to throw education into the, into the waste paper basket and we really don't need it in order to be an entrepreneurial uh, society. Personally, I have found education as the silver bullet. It's, you know, it has enabled social mobility. It has, uh, I've seen it in terms of an employer base, as an employer, that we, uh, across the board, we hire people with degrees, without degrees, further education, um, NVQs, all sorts of qualifications. And some people that we just take right from the beginning, after school, where they haven't had a good time um, in secondary school, haven't really enjoyed it, and then they go on a learning path. Um, so there's a variety of routes but this notion of theoretical learning and practice and knowledge acquisition is something that I think is absolutely crucial within society. It's crucial for the economy. It's crucial for uh, social mobility. I'm of an age where it was a full grant for me. So I'm hugely grateful for that. But fundamentally, I would probably suggest to you that if I didn't, if I didn't have that opportunity um, and at my postgraduate level I, I had a scholarship, I'm not sure I would have done any of those things. And I don't think I would have been as effective as I am on a day-to-day -day basis whatever that is, um, without those, um, that acquisition of knowledge and skills and learning. Thank you, Maggie. Just as a, a kind of show of hands, who here in the audience has got a degree? Uh, all bar one, in fact. Um, and so, and Simone. Do you feel, did you, did you ever feel person who doesn't have a degree? You can just nod or shake your head that not having a degree held you back? 
doesn't seem to be holding her back. I can tell by looking at it, it's not holding her back at all. Um, but really interesting. Well, look, always really brilliant to hear your thoughts, of course, your comments, anything you'd like to say. Do tweet us at North Power Women or you can email podcasts at northernpowerwomen.com. Right, final question. This is something I had a debate about on the wireless, in fact, the other day. Now, um, just a few weeks ago, a Silicon Valley CEO revealed she dyed her blonde hair brown and wore, in her words, more gender-neutral clothes in order to, and again, her words, to be taken more seriously. The specific example here was that she was looking to speak to venture capitalists, and she said, if I'm going into a company and asking venture capitalists to give me hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, I need to look, in her words, gender neutral, and she felt that having blonde hair might have been a distraction. Becky Wilde, discuss. I know we had a little uh, round round the office kind of chat about this today. Um, I personally uh, dress in all kinds of different styles for all kinds of different things, uh, but I'm not going to deny that I will dress to get the outcome that I want out of an exchange, or that I will dress um, to uh, kind of create a relationship with the people that I'm about to speak to. So I don't know necessarily if that is a disservice or a gender-related thing, or just savvy business sense. Liam your thoughts I own a really nice pair of red shoes um, that I will wear uh, to meetings that are important and um, people know when I come back in the office and I've got these shoes on that they're my serious shoes and um, and everyone knows that I've been to a serious meeting but I tend to dress down and recently was challenged trying to get into JMU to a meeting at the engineering department because I was dressed not too dissimilar to how I'm dressed now. And I was trying to get into the car park and um, the, the guy leant out the window and said, this isn't student parking. And I said, it's fine, you know, I'm, I'm here for a meeting with the, uh, with the head of engineering, no big deal. But in relation to that actual point that, that was raised, this happens a lot. People are judged on the way that they look and it is undoubtedly true that women are judged. It's in the news at the moment that a Canadian MP, Jerry Ritz, um, he called one of the Liberal MPs in Canada a um, climate Barbie because she's got blonde hair and she was talking about climate change. And I think that that's inherent. Like that, if, if that's your go-to when you want to insult somebody, then you know that, that your undertones are the, the patriarchy mm. and, and that status quo is, is the issue that is being raised in, in, this, que- in this question. Um, Would you feel offended? Because some of the men I spoke to about this said, wait a minute, the suggestion is that if she's dressing in a non-feminine way and dyeing her blonde hair brown, she's suggesting that as a man, I'd be too distracted by her beauty in order to make good business decisions. Do you find that offensive? What's your response? Um, I'll respond by telling you that people actively try and avoid our managing director at Make Liverpool, who is a woman, um, and far, far more organised than I am and considerably better at the job of being MD than I am but people try and cut her out of the conversation when they want to get an answer and they come to me for some reason there are other directors and they're all women and it seems to be me who gets the second choice of trying to get the answer and another sort of anecdote of, of this was you know I'm I was I was in the office and we had some um, some building contractors come in and they wanted to know where to, I don't know, put the concrete or something like that. And I'm there doing my work, and they, they come in, they open the door, and they go, hey, um, and they didn't even ask who it was that they needed to, to ask. I was the only man in the room, so they come to me, and they say, where are we putting the concrete? And I just sort of turned around and said, I don't know, why don't you ask RMD Kirsten? She's also the one that can weld. Uh, and uh, and she, it, when it comes to those sorts of things, like uh, it's that to me was the the, the undertone of, of of this question. It, that is a repeated thing over and over again. So it doesn't surprise me that. And, and also, I've got another statistic here that I'm going to read out. Fiona Shaw wrote uh, something for the Business uh, Tribune, and it says that nine percent of startup investment went to businesses with women as the as the founder. Just nine percent in the last few years. So it doesn't surprise me that if she wants nothing to get in her way, then she'll swallow her pride and, and dye her hair brown so that she's taken a little bit more seriously. Uh, it's, a sad, it's a sad state of affairs, but it's true. Do you think she was swallowing her pride, Maggie, or do you think she was being... 
very clever. How, how do you feel about her decision? I wouldn't call it clever. I wouldn't. Um, I think I would take the view that any person, woman or man, that's going into venture capital uh, and they're looking for... That's going to be a partnership going forward. They're looking for investment. And that relationship has to be one of mutual respect and also a collaborative activity to make it really and truly successful. So I'm getting my advisor head on here and I would say, don't do that. Because anybody who's not is going to you know if you're not going to get the response you need to get on the basis of what you're saying and how you're presenting it it doesn't make any difference if you wear you know a leprechaun's outfit it's immaterial really um is it really would you wear a leprechaun's outfit to a business meeting uh (laughs) you know if it was st patrick's day i might i might uh if i was looking to get noticed i i personally don't buy that whole thing around how you look i think it's what you're saying i think it's how you're saying it um don't get me wrong the evidence base isn't great in terms of of uh venture capital particularly in the united states but the idea of you know dying i'd look like morticia if i dyed my hair black um but but you know there's a serious thing i think what happens is that this kind of story gets picked up in the press because it it's it's kind of out there it's kind of a little bit on the ridiculous because if she was just saying oh i'm having difficulty trying to raise finance on the basis of the fact that i'm going in to a very male dominated area of investment my advice to her is is that you know what there are plenty of venture capital um circles as they call them that actually focus on female um enterprises and that there are women lending to women so you know think of something different. Don't start changing who you are in order to pander to a bunch of misogynists, if that's the case, would be my advice. What fantastic advice to end on. Huge round of applause. Thank you so much for coming along today. And thank you as well to our uh, fantastic panel, to uh, Maggie Carroll, Liam Kelly, and also to Becky Wilde. Thank you so much. Thanks again to our brilliant panellists. And if one of your colleagues turns up to work tomorrow dressed as a leprechaun, yeah, you know who to blame. If you'd like to take part in the future or you've got a suggestion for a discussion, please do get in touch. Just email us podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Now it is time to delve into the mind of an individual who lives with real purpose and hear about some of the decisions and challenges that they have faced in their career. Today you're going to hear from a member of the Northern Power Women Power List, Liverpool's Karen Matteson. She's the joint CEO of TimeWise, an organisation which works towards creating, in their words, a better, fairer job market for people who want to work flexibly. I spoke to Karen in her home office from the Northern Power Women studio. We run a job site for candidates who want flexible and part-time work. We help businesses make flexible working work for them. And finally, we run campaigns for a better, fairer job market. And I'm, I'm presuming this idea and this whole movement was born out of personal experience. Yeah, it was. Um, so uh, it was a very similar experience that I had and also my co-CEO, Emma, um, who uh, I'd worked with already. And about 12 years ago, uh, my experience was that I just got completely stuck in the world of work, in the job market, because um, I wanted to work. I had, I was in work at the time. I had two young kids and I was ready to progress to my next um, kind of role. I still felt ambitious, but I wanted the flexibility that I had in the job. I was in a management job at the time, and I had a flexible arrangement. I could work four days a week, and I wanted to find something that was flexible um, in the next role, but I, I sort of wanted to step up. And um, I looked around for six months, and I literally couldn't find anything to apply for. And I found myself completely stuck, like paralyzed in the job market, really, because I felt like I was stuck where I was because I couldn't move up where I was and I couldn't move out. And um, I guess my experience at the time was I thought that the problem was with me. And I thought that I didn't fit into the world of work anymore because what I wanted, I kept being told, wasn't possible, which was a a challenging, progressed um, role, but less than full time. And I was told that wasn't possible. So I assumed that I needed to think again about whether I fit into the world of work. And uh, 
what what then happened was the more I spoke to other women, I found myself at the school gates more, and the more I spoke to other women, I realised this was a huge experience. And this was, you know, my son is 19, my oldest son is 19 now, so he was about five at the time. So this is, you know, 14, 15 years ago. No one was talking like they talk now about things like women returners and women in the workplace and part-time work. It really just literally wasn't being talked about. And what I realised was there were so many people who were having a similar experience who'd fallen out of work, not because they wanted to, because they just couldn't find that flexibility. And how did you sell that in, for want of a better phrase, to companies who who you did feel had the doors closed to you? Once you set TimeWise up, people who would say, well, wait a minute, I don't want two or three people doing this role. I, I want one person, so I've got that one point of contact. How did you sell in this concept to a very sort of blinkered society, I suppose, business society? Well, it's interesting because um, at the beginning, we don't we weren't operating the model that we, we've really changed a lot and we weren't operating the model um, that we're operating now. So we were very much focused on coaching and supporting women to help them back into work, which continues to be a really important area of work. Um, but what we were doing was sort of selling them in, um, I guess, to businesses that had already got their heads around part-time flexible work. So traditionally, like small, medium-sized businesses, charities with limited budgets to where they could see well I might want a finance director but I can't afford them five days a week I don't even need them five days a week and it's a bit of a myth it's interesting because when people talk about part-time work how difficult it is for small businesses actually I think they've always used part-time flexible workers and because it actually makes business sense to them and the bigger challenge has been selling into the larger corporate businesses Mm -hmm. for whom it's not a budget challenge but at the beginning, we were really focused on supporting the women into what is effectively a pretty rubbish job market. And I think where we've changed is we've, we've also realized that you can't just focus on fixing the women to fit into a bad market. You have to address the market failures that there exist. So lots of the work that we do now is really helping businesses see the actual benefits to them of employing a part-time flexible workforce, how jobs can be designed, how you can find innovation there, because, of course, they're scratching their heads and wondering how do we deal with all these challenges? Why do all these women come to us at graduate level, perform really well, and then disappear? What can we do about it? And the answer is you need to change too, because the world of work has changed so dramatically, um, and the workforce that you want has changed dramatically in terms of what they want. And so we do lots and lots of work now on helping businesses really innovate in how they design jobs because it's a very um, blinkered view, as you say, to think about work having to fit into this Monday to Friday, nine to five, sit on your chair. It just isn't like that anymore. What are the main benefits? If, If business owners or people at senior levels within corporations are listening, thinking, yeah, 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 for me, it's not going to be right. What, what advantages would flexible workers bring to my business? What would you say? It's actually not that difficult for businesses to, to be pointed out to the benefits of flexible working. And I think the fact that the whole conversation has been about women and children probably hasn't done the flexible working conversation or women that many favours because there are huge benefits to businesses of employing a flexible workforce. There's a real estate. If you don't need to pay for a huge amount of office space, in in central London or central Manchester, don't do it. If your workforce has got the technology to work remotely or is out on the road seeing clients or whatever it might be, you don't need to have a desk for them sitting there. Then if you start to quantify the costs of um, uh, retraining and rehiring, the recruitment and retention piece is so huge as soon as you start to quantify it. And we know from, we don't need any more surveys to tell us that this is a fundamental in terms of why people leave businesses, that they can't find the flexibility that they need. And I think that um, the other thing is that this is now no longer a conversation about a sort of subgroup of women with children in the workforce. And actually, at TimeWise, we did a big piece of research that we launched last week, which showed that if you put together those who work flexibly and those who want to, you're looking at almost 90% of the actual workforce at the moment. And so in many ways, flexibility is as important as salary 
to people. That might be because they have caring responsibilities. It might be because they're studying. It might be for health reasons. There are any number of reasons at any time in your life where that comes into effect. And I think businesses are starting to understand it's something they need a strategy on rather than need a policy on. It's really interesting you've brought up the notion that this whole conversation of flexible working, if you centre it solely on women, it Mm. actually does a disservice to everyone. And do you work uniquely with women? Because more and more we're Mm. hearing male voices going, wait a minute, I want to pick my kids up from school. Wait a minute, I'd like an extra day to spend with my family. Mm. I think um, I came into this and I became passionate about it very much from a women's point of view. But the more I've looked at it, the more that we've... uh, And actually, the original brand that we launched under was a very women-focused brand. But when we launched TimeWise, it was because of that very um, understanding that we have to get this right for all groups, both genders, all groups of society. And um, interestingly, on our own job site, the the biggest growing number of candidates, so we've got 90,000 candidates on our job site looking for flexible and part-time jobs. And the biggest uh, growth really is in the men. Because the minute you make it acceptable to talk about flexibility for both both for men and women, the, the men come, they want it just as much as the women. And interestingly, younger men want it. And people are making decisions about their work. And it's absolutely fundamental to them. And I think the other problem is that the real negative brands that we've got around part-time, like it's a little job, a little part-time job for, for a mum. And you immediately think of um, something kind of low-skilled, entry-level. And actually, that hasn't done anybody any favours either. So if you take the wider uh, definition of flexibility, which is on when, where, and how much people work. So the how much bit is the part-time. The when is obviously you know when you work you might it, what might work for you in your your personal setup is some sort of compressed hours and the where obviously is being able to work from different locations these are hugely important to people so even if you are you know say you're a, a young person for whom owning a flat for example you really want to be on the property ladder but owning a flat in a city center is just unaffordable you might be able to Um, commute for example for a good hour away that's fine three days a week if you can work from home two days that flexibility is hugely important to you just as it is for the mum who's got a three-day week for childcare reasons and then when it comes to moving jobs it can also be a trap because you want to take the flexibility with you when you move in your in your role and that's where the job market becomes blocked in exactly the same way as it became blocked for me because when employers advertise jobs at the moment less than 10% of them even mention what flexibility there may or may not be in a role that they advertise they always talk about salary but they never mention well only one in 10 of them do flexible working as a possibility and that creates a huge challenge in the job market for people who want or need to work flexibly or part-time. A lot of the the women that I speak to who do work part-time and, and I'm, I mention women specifically because actually I don't know many men who work part-time mm. at the moment but many of the women I speak to who work part-time said it's very easy to fall into the trap of officially, in inverted commas, working four mm. days a week or three days a week, and, and officially being paid and getting the pension benefits and the and the uh, and the holiday benefits of working three or four days a week. But in reality, they say they're, they're pretty much working full time. Yeah. And actually, our very first our very first Northern Power Women podcast, one of the panelists said exactly that. She totted her hours mm. up on four days a week and worked as m- as many as her five day a week male colleagues. How do you not fall into that trap? It's a really interesting question, and I'd say um, in our consultancy side of the business, it's one of the biggest areas of growth, which is what I would call flexible and part-time job design, because what happens traditionally in that situation that you describe is that somebody may be in a full-time job, and then they want to stay in that job, but they suddenly need to work less. So... Uh, they re- the person that they ask for that flexible or part-time arrangement, is, for example, the four days is the classic one, can I work four days? They, they want to keep them, and that person wants to stay in the job. So everybody agrees, and everybody's very pleased and, and, and sort of congratulates each other, isn't this fantastic, I'm working four days a week. But nothing gets redesigned about how the job is done. So effectively, 
you haven't had an honest conversation, right, well, where's the 20% of that job going to go? Can it be done through admin? Can it be given to somebody else? There's 20% here that's got to go somewhere. So after that honeymoon of gratitude, what, what people can find is they're actually squeezing their full-time job into one which is actually an 80% of the time. And that's, almost, that's, a, that's a really difficult experience for everybody. Whereas if we were having much more honest and open conversations about the design of the job, what's in, what's out, less focused about hours and more about output, what are the priorities here, then you have a really interesting conversation because actually you can cut it any which way at all. And you can take much more of a team approach to it. So it's not a special thing that we do for a mum after maternity leave. This is just how we do business because we're a, we're a company that understands how to judge outputs rather than the input. And how, on a similar line really, how do you switch off? Because we've all done a working from home day and it's easier to leave the office at five o'clock or six o'clock or three o'clock or whenever your working hour is. Mm. But quite often when you're at home, maybe you go and pick your children up and you give them their tea or you finish your working day and then it's very easy to slip back in isn't it to just yeah. going, I'm just going to finish off those emails because I'm in working mode and I'm still at home how do you draw that line look I think any kind of work these days work has kind of bled into our lives in a way that we you know we all thought it was it was so fantastic that we didn't have to wait at the office for that phone call we could get it now on our mobile. So that was marvellous because we could leave the office early and know that the phone would come in. So while technology liberated us from sitting at an office, it also took our work home with us. And I think that's true whether you're working from home or you've got a kind of more of a traditional office job. I think it's incumbent on both businesses and individuals to set some sort of boundaries around it. It's an interesting thing, this whole working from home um, debate, because the assumption is that you're doing less. And, and I really find very funny this the whole thing about, well, you know, people might just put a wash on when they're working from home. I would always put a wash on when I work from home. That takes me 30 seconds. I think that's absolutely fine. Um, there's all sorts of things that I, I actually personally find on, on the one day a week I work from home, I'm incredibly focused. I get a huge amount done. And I keep for that working at home day the things that I find it hard to do in the office, like think and write and when I'm not doing meetings. Um, but I think that it is incumbent on you anyway in what we would call these kind of extreme jobs to, to, to create for yourself boundaries around it. So log off and then that's it. But that, that's true whether you're office-based or home-based, I think. Can we just go back to something we were just talking about earlier about the whole women and part-time thing? Yeah. When I talked about how I felt when I was looking for a job and I thought I just don't fit in what I really wanted was to know that there were role models out there that were, I, I just thought who's me in 10 years time who's actually managed to do this and because I couldn't see anybody visibly working in any kind of senior role on a part-time basis I just thought no one had really cracked it and you know certainly in the organization I was in there was one other person who had children and she'd never worked part-time and I literally didn't know anyone in my own network I think that was part of the assumption of why it wasn't possible but then when we set up um, the organization time-wise and the work that we were doing I had a really good look at the government's data what I found was there were 800 odd thousand people working part-time in the UK right now in the higher tax bracket. So there's 8 million people working part-time overall and 800,000 of them are working in the higher tax bracket. So there are a huge numbers of people and 20% of them are men. So there are huge numbers of people who are working in those senior levels part-time but they're just not really talking about it or they didn't seem to have very much of a voice. And um, what we did was we interviewed 300 of them and asked them how they felt about it. And what they said was, yeah, it's working for me, but I don't really want to have the brand of the part-time worker because it won't do me any favours. I'll be seen as on the mummy track, passed over for interesting projects. Or some of them said, my manager said, I'll give it to you, but I don't want all those poor performers doing it. So kind of do it under the radar. And then you hear these terrible things about people walking out of the office through the fire escape so people don't know they've left early and things like that. 
And so um, what we really wanted to do was tell the stories of people who are actually making it work. Because for me, as a candidate 12 years ago, 13 years ago, I would have found that so inspiring and it would have given me hope that it was possible or courage to ask. And so we launched a power list of people who work part-time and flexibly in 2012. And I was always really clear that we were looking for men as well as women to tell the stories of the kind of people who are working in those senior part-time flexible roles. And it's been probably one of the most rewarding parts of the job um, because meeting and finding those people that I thought didn't exist and every year we haven't we add another 50 so we've just opened nominations now for this year's TimeWise Power List and we've extended the search so for people in senior roles who are doing job shares who've returned from work from a, a career break or simply doing senior jobs on a part-time basis we're really looking to tell another 50 stories because there's been some absolutely amazing ones in the past and I know there are so many people um, interestingly I heard someone on your previous podcast saying how she'd found that very um, inspiring herself about what was possible and so really I'd love anybody who is listening if you've got anyone to nominate please do so on um, timewise.co.uk Karen we often find ourselves stuck in our careers and we don't know which way to turn and we don't fit into the existing frameworks you took that challenge and actually created your own framework which is incredibly empowering and inspiring for so many people men and women if people find themselves in the situation that you were in it can be frightening to think, well, do you know what? I'm going to go and set up my own business. But it's you've shown it's completely possible and people are still doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I didn't imagine that I would end up setting up my own business. I didn't, you know, no one in my family had ever set up a business. It wasn't something that was at all in my game plan. But in the end, it was something I just felt propelled to do because I could, I could see really clearly a solution to a problem that I'd experienced myself. And... Um, it's so the I suppose the advice I would give to people in that situation is there are always going to be people telling you not to do it. It's a bad idea. It won't have legs. There's, you know, I don't see where the revenue comes from, whatever it is. There's a million reasons not to. But I think if you've got that idea, and actually for me, it's given me huge flexibility. It's been incredibly hard work, but I have had the flexibility um, to do things that I've wanted to do outside of work as well. And I think it's a really powerful message. And, you know, interestingly, in this year's Power TimeWise Power List, we've also got a category of flexible founders for people for the, to try and tell the stories of those so many people, many of them women but not all, who've been propelled to, uh, or to set up their own businesses, also because they want some flexibility and some autonomy about controlling how, when and where they work. So, Karen, looking forward, what's the one thing you would still love to achieve? Uh, the thing that I would love to achieve is when um, is I want to see that dial moved so that instead of only less than one in ten jobs mentioning flexible or part-time working as an option, that it just becomes normal. So that, you know, I didn't have a daughter, I've got three sons, but if they want to work flexibly in the future, that they just don't feel or, um, that they have to compromise on career progression in return for flexibility, that they don't feel that that's a trade-off that they've got to do or if they get stuck. That I really do believe that you can have it all, but that the key to that is unlocking the flexible job market. So that's the thing that I'm not giving up on. Thank you so much to Karen for taking time out from running a really, really big, important business and, of course, simultaneously putting on a wash. Because she can. And a reminder of the nominations for the TimeWise Power 50 Awards. Do please get involved. All the details you need are at timewise.co.uk and nominations close on November the 3rd. Now, if there's a man or a woman that you'd love to hear on this podcast, just let us know. Tweet at North Power Women or email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Thank you. Can you believe? Time's almost up. But before episode four rides off into the sunset, it's time for Ask the Hive. Now, this is a chance for you to ask a question on something that you're interested in, maybe you're confused by or stuck with in your career. 
You ask, and then through the power of the brilliant minds associated with Northern Power Women, you get some answers. So in a moment, you'll hear next month's question from Fiona. But first, this month, Sarah got in touch and you responded. Sarah Starling, I'm a self-employed voiceover. I've worked in the media for 25 years. I worked for the BBC for a very long time, across TV and radio, and I've been self-employed as a voiceover for 10 years. Recently, I joined a business forum on Facebook, and I asked this question of myself. My female colleagues regularly ask this of themselves, and we talk about it between ourselves. Why is it that we as women, successful women, don't feel confidence, question our skills constantly, whereas men don't seem to, or if they do, they keep it very quiet. How can we change that? I think it's a feeling that is not particularly gender-specific. If I'm honest, I find a lot of it is to do maybe with this kind of 24-hour world that we live in. There's never a finish point to anything that you do. You know, there's always an email, a to-do list, a new project. So I think uh, trying to find success in the smaller moments rather than seeing success as being like a finite place is like a better way to uh, kind of frame those feelings. Men do struggle with confidence issues, but they're probably more socially conditioned to cover that up with bravado, with bullshit, with just not being able to express those feelings. It's just not how men tend to be brought up to behave. In the the line of work that you do, it seems that you are the product, and if, if people don't like what you do, then you can see that as a reflection on you personally. You're not part of a team who's going to submit a project. It's just you. Surely that's going to affect your confidence. How do we change it? It's it's a societal problem, isn't it? It's something deep-rooted in how we bring up our boys and girls. There's no quick, easy fix to that, except just be honest and be open, and the more we talk about it, the more chance it has of going away. So, ironically, I've actually come from a family of men. So, when I was young, I thought I was indestructible. I was the girl on the playground playing footy. I was the girl saying yes to absolutely everything. But then, when I went into an all-girl school, something happened. And something, by the time I was 12 or 13, I started to question myself, which is very, very interesting. So, then that, for me, took me on a wayward path to get where I am now. I was told straight away, when I remember very, very, very vividly, when I was in year nine, very specifically... And I went in, I was really ballsy, went in and went, OK, so um, I want to, you know, I'd love to be some type of entrepreneur, I'd love to explore something, you know, into the computers, into IT, something like that. And I was told straight away, that's a man's role. Why is that a man's role? So you're telling me, right, you're telling me that I can do food technology and I can make an apple pie, I can make apple crumble, but I can't go in and learn to code. I can't learn the ins and outs of Excel, which was very big at the time. Why not? Um, but I think that was really the cast for me then when I went into college and when I went to, finally went to university after, a, again, a wayward path to get where I was, that made me go, hang on a minute, there's something there, there's something about it, there's something about working-class women being told that they can't do something, why is that? And, you know, I think that has, again, a lot to do with the education that I had. It's, again, super, super working-class, there was no opportunities, you know, it was like, get you in and out of the school system as quick as you can. If you get a higher education, oh, it's fine, it's fine. But really, we just want you to get your fine to season and then out, out the door type thing. But yeah, there's definitely something in education. Um, why is it just one national curriculum? Why aren't there different ways? And I think that really does impede particularly on women. I personally think um, working in a female-led industry that if there were more men in the industry, I'd probably feel more confident. Um, I've had situations at work where clashed with certain personalities um, of the same gender as me, and I don't think if there were more men in the office necessarily that that would have happened. I think I feel that men sort of bring a more sort of down-to-earth approach sometimes, and their ability to look at it from a different point of view which tends to be from my experience less personal you know can help really solve the situation quite quickly 
I think it's less acceptable in the workplace for a man to question his skills and even more so to show that they're questioning their skills and their confidence, things like that. Um, I've worked in a few different industries and depending on what you're in and what kind of men or women are in that, I think that's a bigger factor of your confidence and abilities. But for me, I feel like in an office environment, I can come forward a bit more. So the question is, as women, and I'm not a woman, um, but I think that my perspective would be that um, men probably hide it as a, as a default and, and speaking as a man. I definitely feel unconfident and I'm definitely asked a number of times how I managed to be so confident in certain situations. And I'm always the first to sort of reply, say, you know, confidence is, confidence is different to the way that you act. And I think there's also a lot of expectation that women will act in that way and perhaps that it's a conformity to the status quo rather than anything else. I don't have an answer to the question, but I do recognise it in myself and I know that I know some of the most brilliant and inspirational women and every single one of them suffers from the same sort of problem. One thing I would say, though, is subliminally women are encouraged to believe that it is hard when people ask me how do you do it all all that messaging that it's actually difficult to be a successful woman it's not it's a damn sight easier to be successful it's a damn sight easier if you're a high income earner and you can pay to outsource some of the crap jobs that people don't want to do but we're constantly told it's going to be hard and how do you do it Okay, so I haven't got the answer at all, but what I would say is running my own sort of company and charity. I had exactly that question on Monday. I literally wanted to go from CEO to probably the cook and felt that's probably where I should be, better than where I am. Um, And I think inherently women are competitive as well and a lot, I know they all say the men, but I think they just think it's it's their God-given right to go up the ladder. So women get very competitive with each other as well. Um, And it sort of then hinders your confidence and I think as a younger woman that's doing quite well as well, you then start, it's that imposter thing that you think, oh no, I've taught me way here. Am I actually doing what I say I'm doing? And it's that self-belief that makes you question yourself. And it's everyone else asking you, the, every time I get any recognition for what I do or what as a team we do, they go, were you 31? <laughs> no, I was older, was that? Um, you're 31, you've got kids, how do you do it? I just get up every morning and go and do it and it's a passion and I deliver what my passion is. Well I think um, there is a number of reasons uh, why women feel this way. I think the reality is, is that they shouldn't but 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 there is it starts off at a very young age in terms of all that messaging and all that modeling that goes on in relation to girls and boys. Um, and what uh, characteristics are attributed to young girls and boys and that's where the rot starts to set in and then it becomes kind of nearly an imposter syndrome Uh, whereas you can actually do the job or you can be very very successful but there's always that grain of doubt um, instilled so I think there is something about education but I also think there's also something about society in general in terms of recognising the language that we use around young girls, about women we also um, about how and what we expect in terms of the aspirations for young women and uh, and that carries on into adulthood so that imposter syndrome is one of the major things that probably really does um, impede women's sort of sense of themselves and their sense of self-efficacy as we would say their self-belief and that can have a rather corrosive effect in terms of um, how they conduct themselves and how they feel about uh, their day-to-day work on the success and I suppose the major distinction between that and their male colleagues is that I suppose boys and men hide it better they're a little bit more um, I suppose they have a guerrilla tactic guerrilla warfare tactic in relation to it but inherently I think what we really have here is we've got it starts at childhood it carries on into adulthood but there are ways of addressing it and, and clearly you know ripping up that imposter syndrome is possible um, there are the whole thing around recognising that you do have uh, some concerns about your, your self-confidence, getting a mentor, um, looking at other role models, seeing that it is possible and actually really sort of mapping out and thinking about how fantastic at the beginning of every day saying, look what I'm going to do today, look what I did yesterday.
Thank you so much to everyone who took part this month. What a brilliant, meaty discussion. So, as ever, it's now over to you. If there's something you would like to ask The Hive, it's no good holding back. Instead, just send us a WhatsApp number to follow or you can email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com and we will do the rest. This month's question comes from Fiona. I'm Fiona Armstrong-Gibbs. In the new devolution deal, the Liverpool City region is made up entirely of men. There's no women to represent regions like St Helens, Halton and the Wirral. Should some of those male representatives step aside and allow a woman to take their seat? Thank you, Fiona. Something tells me that question is going to touch a few nerves. So please don't hold back. Get in touch. It is so easy. You can record your answer using the Voice Memo app on your smartphone and email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com or open up WhatsApp on your phone. Add the Northern Power Women podcast on 07928 387 712. And I'll give you that number again in a moment. And then you record your answer on WhatsApp using the little microphone icon. It's right next to the message box. Hold that down while you talk. Take your finger off the button and your message will immediately be sent to us. That number again, 07928 387 712. And all those details and the instructions you need are also online under podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. So there we have it. Thank you so much for listening. And also thanks for all your feedback. We are, of course, still but mere toddlers in the podcasting world. So we are so grateful for you for spreading the word amongst your friends, your colleagues, your networks, that person sat next to you on the bus, your friend from primary school, whoever it is. Thank you so much. Please, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And your feedback is so welcome as well. Do tell us what you love, what you'd like to hear, or we'll just agree with Karen Matteson. So much better than women's are. I really enjoyed it. I think it was great. The next episode arrives with you on November the 3rd. Until then, this is the Northern Power Women podcast. I'm Sam Walker, and this has been a What Goes On Media production for Northern Power Women. Northern Power Women.